as a strategist, I have an opinion, but collectively we will build a strategy. Strategy is a team sport and mm. design really is too. Welcome to Play in Conversations, the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, Head of Content Strategy at PlanCo, and joining me is Brendan Hutchison, the Founder and Director of PlanCo. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform. Michelle is a user experience designer and digital strategist with a rich background in industrial design, user-centered design, research, innovation, experience strategy, and brand management. In the early 2000s, Michelle foresaw the rise of IoT and connected devices and consequently went on to found Echo Visualization, an interaction design and user experience consultancy in 2002. After Echo Viz was acquired in 2012, Michelle stayed on to grow through two more acquisitions to become Senior Director of Innovation and Strategy at Capgemini Invent in 2018. She has served as an executive board member for the International Council of Societies of Industrial Design, known simply today as the WDO or World Design Organization, and also as president, then chairman emeritus of the Industrial Designers Society of America, or IDSA. These days, Michelle is executive creative director for Hero Digital, a customer experience company with offices in San Francisco, Austin, Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia. She's also a member of Chief, a private network built to drive more business women into leadership positions and adjunct faculty in industrial design at the Georgia Institute of Technology. When not designing, Michelle can often be found traveling the world, camera in hand, looking for beauty, inspiration, and fresh perspectives. We hope you enjoy this freewheeling chat about all things design. Michelle, welcome. You are a user experience designer and digital strategist with a rich background in industrial design, user-centered design, research innovation, experience strategy, and brand management. You've had uh, you've held positions including president uh, of the IDSA, Industrial Design Society of America. Uh, you've been on the board. Uh, you've been a part of the World Design Organization. You've you've had this extremely storied career. Can we back up a little bit and, and tell us where the origin story is and, and a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing today? Yeah, happy to uh, take you on the whole journey. I had, I had no idea what industrial design was, let alone user experience or interaction design or anything like that. Um, I thought that I was going to you know, go to college and be a, be a lawyer or maybe a veterinarian or something. Uh, and my senior year in high school, my mom was actually diagnosed with a terminal illness. And what was really interesting was that sort of as her physical health declined, products came into our house that really helped her compensate. Uh, so, you know, things that maybe seem kind of simple and not, not top of mind, but you know, something that raised the seat on the on the toilet that allowed her to be more independent and go to the bathroom on her own for a longer period of time. Uh, a kind of living room chair that had a seat pan that lifted forward so that she could stand up on her own. There were things like this that um, I'd never seen before. And it occurred to me that 
somebody made these things, but I still didn't really know what industrial design was. Um, so I ended up choosing a university that was the best one academically closest to home, um, which happened to be Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went there as a management major and it didn't take long to discover that I really, really didn't like that. And that was not my calling in this world. Um, and I was flipping through the course catalog, trying to figure out if there was something at tech that I could do that um, made sense. And I discovered the course description for industrial design. And it was just like this aha moment that, oh my God, yes, that's it. And, and th then I just kind of realized that those were the people that made those kinds of products. And you know, it was after that that I sort of discovered that those are the people that made everything. And that was pretty amazing. So um, I I found it accidentally. And mm. yeah, the rest is history. I don't know. That's fascinating because, you know, a lot of a lot of designers find their way into industrial design with, you know, car automotive design. Uh, you know, they want to design sneakers, they want to design the next iPod. You sort of found your way into uh, with a fascination with human factors and anthropometry and, and just knowing the considerations that go into products to make life better for others. That's a really interesting uh, entrance into the field. So how did that spin off into more user experience design and uh, more of the stuff that you did later in your career? Well, so another kind of interesting angle to that, um, I grew up living in Europe and um, as a kid, we would always go on weekend trips. We would go in these castles and these museums and things. And like, as a kid, it was hard to relate to paintings, you know, like that was just a little too much for my six and seven year old brain. Um, but I could really relate to the objects. So the furniture and the suits of armor and the weapons and, you know, the teacups. And I think as a result of that, I always had sort of a fascination with physical objects. Um, and I am a, a bit of a car nut. And so, you know, there was kind of a natural extension to that, uh, which also helped, you know, kind of round out that experience. But I, um, Early in my career, I worked for Siemens Energy and Automation, and I was designing uh, product interfaces for them uh, and doing a lot of other corporate kind of design work, but it was electrical equipment, big like uh, motor controls and drives and switch gear, things like that. And they were converting the interfaces from dials and toggles and push button displays to membrane displays and seven segment LCD displays. And Siemens is very particular about their design aesthetic. And they actually brought somebody over from Germany to train me and teach me to design these interfaces. And so I think that was my first kind of taste of, of what we now call UX and of, of interaction. And so yeah, I I did that. Uh, I kind of moved into the world of designing trade show exhibits and um, in interactive environments. 
which was kind of interesting because it was like bringing marketing messages to life in three dimensions. Um, but I'll, around the same time, we sort of had the dot-com era starting and people were designing websites. And I, I just like had this sense that there was a way to blend this industrial design background with some of this new web technology. And I would not have said internet of things at the time, like that wasn't a construct, but I had this just sense that products were going to get smarter, that technology was going to be infused in different ways. And I wanted to be part of that. And I, I didn't feel like it was the domain of, of the computer people, but it wasn't quite industrial design in the traditional sense either. And so I just sort of felt like there was a new, a new world was being forged. And so I wanted to figure out how I could get in on it and, and do that. Mm. Was that the start of um, EchoViz? I'm sorry if I'm truncating the, the name of the company, but- No, uh... that we always called it EchoViz. Yeah, um, it kind of is. I went back to school. I got a master's degree, focused on interaction design. Um, it was kind of a choose your own adventure. I did a little bit with information design and technology. I did a little bit with human computer interaction. I did a little bit with uh, industrial design and you know, crafted this degree and then came out and decided to start my own company. And I did it with a couple of partners and we, we wanted to you know, go into this kind of product-based experience world. And mm. you know, this was at a time when we would have to explain to people what we meant when we said product interface or when we said user interface, we'd have to have the conversation. Um, and it was interesting because it was, it was a time that was like some clients just really got it and it was easy for them to understand it and buy it. And others kind of weren't really sure. Like they thought the engineering team owned that they weren't sure mm. how to get us in there, but um, we ended up, of course, we, we did website work and, we still, for a couple of years, still did some exhibit design and other kinds of design. But yeah, that's that's really mm. how EchoViz got started. Was nobody was doing the kind of work that I wanted to do, so I just continued on that choose your own adventure kind of path. Yeah, I figured the worst case scenario is I'd have to get a job. Well, that that's a great approach, I think, for life. And I want to maybe put a pin in that and circle back on that in the end of, uh, for some advice that you would give a younger creative that's coming up through the ranks now in, I would say, a similar, if not greater kind of period of change that's coming down the pike. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. EchoViz, I, I don't want to uh, dwell on dates too much, but was that in the early 2000s? Yeah, we started it in 2002 and yeah. um, we ended up selling it in 2012. So my, my question was going to be, and this is just as I heard you talking through that, I thought I was a junior designer working in Asia on all manner of OEM uh, consumer electronic products from smartphones to TVs to laptops to peripherals and accessories. And when the iPod came out, I think it was maybe not 2002, but it was the early 2000s, the first iPod, it kind of just catalyzed this whole new 
um, understanding of what design, product design, what interaction design, what uh, product interfaces were. I just wonder if you had any any parallel thoughts on that and how that uh, influenced your business at the time. Did it sort of help oh, yeah. people to understand, oh, shit, all of a sudden, I know what this is. I know what Michelle it, and team have been it talking did. about. And, you know, there was this really big proliferation of MP3 players around that time. And Guilty as I charged, had, I think I designed about 50 of them. <laughs> yeah, and, and I probably had 10 or 12 of them. I mean, I just, I bought all of them because it was a great sort of use case to understand and to see different approaches. So I had a, I had a, a two or three of them that Creative made. I had, mm. you know, of course, an iPod. I had one, I had a Rio. I had, um, yeah. there I had was one that I Compaq River. made. There was yeah. I River too. They were a pretty cool Korean brand um, that did all this beautiful uh, product kind of interface stuff. Then there were all uh, the, the the type that we designed were like these little flash drives. So it was an MP3 yeah. player that you could plug straight into the side of your laptop and a little um, headphone jack out the other end, and it'd fit like 50 songs on it. <laughs> the good I old remember. days. I wow. think I still have a bunch of them in a box someplace because, you know, they they were cool objects also. A lot of them were, were really interesting um, in the yeah. way they were designed. Yeah, those were cool times with products. We'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play & Conversations is brought to you by Play & Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play & Co. for a design project, be sure to visit playandco.com. Yeah, we really, and also in terms of what it did for the manufacturing industry, for good and bad, it, it kind of elevated the expectation globally of quality of product. And when I say quality, I mean that's build quality, um, just general desirability of the product too. You know, Apple sent shockwaves through the whole, uh, the whole manufacturing supply chain so it was great for us because um all of a sudden design had a slightly stronger voice oddly enough um getting back to echo is i mean i having started my own company play and co with karen and uh and simon and jason now on board trials tribulations how did you find those early years like I'm sure a lot of people would be fascinated to hear, you know, any anyone that's thinking about starting their own company, you know, it's not all beer and Skittles, put it that way. <laughs> it's not, but it's certainly fun. I yeah. I look back on all of that and I mean that's that's one of the most fun kind of parts of my career. Um because we were small and scrappy and yeah. You know, there was a little bit of you you could kind of control your own destiny, but you also learned a lot about like all the things that larger organizations kind of do for you. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden when you're having to pay all the bills and you also have to clean the restroom and you have to do all the business development and you are writing contracts and, you know, then you're still also doing the work. I mean, it's, mm. It's interesting to juggle all the things or to figure out how you how you you disperse the work in a way that makes sense for the business to run. And, you know, there were things like um, 
my partner, Brian, took on our financial role. And we finally realized that Brian had to take every Friday for at least half the day and he had to send out invoices mm -hmm. and he had to pay bills and he had to run salaries and like he had to do this work. And we just like had to make the time happen because we got busy and then all of a sudden we weren't sending invoices. And then when you don't do that, you don't get any money. And yeah. like, you yeah. know, having to figure out what the discipline is to make the business run smoothly. Um, we worked a lot of hours and it was great. And we worked with, you know, we really had some amazing people that we hired into the organization. And I, I think if I look back on that, the legacy of, of, the team we had and where those people have gone and the roles that they play now in their organizations. I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's fantastic to hear, I mean, with your heart on your sleeve, those are definitely the things that we, we juggle a lot too. And uh, particularly with the nuts and bolts and invoicing and uh, writing contracts and just following up on due diligence on a lot of, what what designers might typically perceive as boring or mundane work it's what makes the company go around and um um some days when you're doing it all you you feel like a superhero you're like wow you know like i covered such a huge bandwidth of um tasks right everything from finance through to a bit of creative at the end of the day and then some days you feel like an utter failure <laughs> But that's that's the highs are uh, really high and the lows are really low. But that's what makes it really rewarding too. I think. Well, you know, it was actually 2009. So like, the when the big recession hit, it didn't hit us right away. But I remember, it was July of 2009, and I remember, like, walking into Brian's office and looking at him and going are we unemployed and we just don't know it <laughs> because like we had gone away at the end of June for our 4th of July holiday. And we had so many projects that were supposed to start in July that we did not know how we were going to do the work and not a single one of them materialized. Mm. And I mean, it's not that they went to somebody else. The work just didn't happen period. And like I remember sitting there one day in July thinking to myself, are are are, are we out of business? Mm. And of course the answer was no, we weren't, but like it you did have that sort of like, well now what? Yeah. So so what 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 sort of went through your head in terms of working out of that thought process and, and sort of evolving out of that, I don't want to say sense of despair, because you guys were still in business, but like, how did you motivate your employees and, uh, you know, maintain that cultural aspect when general societal morale was kind of in many ways at an all time low for many people? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we did, we took that time to do some things like, you know, make some updates to our website, think about our marketing materials. Um, it was a good time to reconnect with with friends, with colleagues to find out what was going on and to, you know, kind of get out there and be ready so that when, when our clients and our prospects were ready, we were there and we were top of mind for them. And I'm, 
I'm kind of an extroverted introvert. Like I, I'm good to like have conversations like this and I'm outgoing and I can give big talks. Like I can do all of that stuff, but my least favorite thing in the world is just cold calling people. Right. Like that's just, you know, I don't think anyone (laughs) enjoys cold calling, (laughs) but you you had to do stuff like that and you had to, you had to be scrappy about it. So, so was it around this time that you found sort of an in with uh, IDSA and uh, World Design Organization and, and other industry uh, organizations just to put your, put your name out there and, and put your business I out had, there, or did that come later? It had actually come before. I had already been okay. quite engaged with IDSA, um, but this is around the time that I got involved with World Design Organization. So I guess um, I was president of the IDSA, I think in 2007 and eight. So I was past president at this point in time and I was starting to transition out of my leadership role there. Um, And I was getting a little bit more involved with World Design Organization and starting to do some things on that front. Um, That was hugely beneficial. Both of those things were very beneficial because they taught me a lot about building consensus inside organization about like mm. how ideas move through. Um, in both cases, I, I was working with people who were quite senior to me. Um, and in some cases, like, you know, heroes and idols. Um, I got to work really closely with Bill Mogridge, mm. uh during this period of time too, mm. who then, you know, really became a mentor to me. Um, but you know, it exposed me to a lot of people and a lot of different organizations, but it also afforded me the opportunity to have business conversations with those people, you know, to find out how their businesses were performing and what they were doing. And um, it just gave me a much larger network of people. And, you know, I kind of, it was a little bit encouraging also because I realized like it wasn't just us, like there's, there's at least some comfort in numbers, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, f- I felt that way. Uh, well, with COVID, I think when when COVID hit, this, at at the start of 2020, we had a similar kind of oh, are we out of a job kind of moment. <laughs> um, but the reality there was, I, I, I mean, I don't want to digress on this too much, but what I found with US companies, US culture was that when presented with a wall like that, the attitude with at least our clients was how do we how do we jump over this wall, dig around, dig under it, knock through it or walk around it? How do we find ways around the barriers? And um, I thought that that was that was really exciting to see. We saw companies pivoting from um, making pretty big moves from being a, a traditionally consumer tech company to moving into health tech, um, leveraging experience from what they knew in consumer products and trying to um, go into rapid diagnostics and things like that. So I, I saw an amazing amount of energy uh, around around um, reinvention and innovation, which I thought was incredibly exciting. So I, I think the silver lining to the whole uh, low economic lows, global economic lows is that um, quite often a lot of innovation and energy can come out of that. And so I just wanted to add that little. I, I think it's right. And I think 
We had already been working really closely with a local digital agency called Think Interactive. And, you know, kind of through that recessionary period, um, they also, they lost some people, just natural attrition. Um, I think that they might've done a round or two of layoffs. I, I don't really remember, but we ended up kind of becoming a bit of their de facto UX team. And we started just working a lot closer with them and that ultimately led to them acquiring us. And, you know, we, we did, in fact, once that happened, we really did focus on some innovation offerings and sort mm -hmm. of, you know, some pivots to help clients. Um, this was also kind of that era where hackathons were a really big thing. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, but hackathons kind of all created this Monday morning problem, which is, you know, you did all this great thing over the weekend. And then on Monday morning, you still had your real job and all those yeah. great ideas would just languish. Um, and so yeah. we, we developed an offering around like how to resolve that Monday morning problem and take some of those ideas and push them forward. Um, and so oh. that was a really nice outcome. And um, that's some of that work has kind of catapulted me into some other interesting directions with my career. Um, that's really some of the work that got me into being a, a, a digital strategist and a strategy leader. Um, and I have run innovation teams and innovation organizations since then. So like, I, I do feel like a lot of that was the catalyst that kind of has brought me to where I am today. Mm. Can I, can I maybe take one step back and ask about the, the acquisition, if that's okay. Um, selfishly, uh, as, as a design a business owner, I do look at companies on the outside, like like the big ones like IDEO and um, actually Capgemini who who acquired the company that you you guys got acquired by. They acquired Frog Design as well in 2021. Yeah. So there's some huge kind of acquisitions of creative consultancies actually. What do you, what's your take on the dynamic around that? What What is the value? Like for me, it's hard to understand you know the nuts and bolts of why why creative agencies get acquired, where the what's their value or their return on design investment, um, and then what it looked like for you being a, a small a small studio that was then acquired by Think, who was then acquired maybe two more times. Yeah, by by Liquid Hub, we went from being a fifty person organization to being about a thousand person organization. We then went on to be acquired by Capgemini, where we were, um, at the time that I left Capgemini, it was a 270,000 person organization. Wow. That's um, unbelievable. That was, yeah, <laughs> that was two years ago. And, you know, the consulting firms and the systems integrators, um, there's a lot of that business that's commodity. <laughs> at this point in time where they're they're really competing against each other on price and so much work is being done offshore. So yeah. design is a differentiator, you know, and it's really viewed as a tip of the spear kind of activity. Um, it's, mm. it's viewed as something that can be an innovation accelerator. Um, it's a different approach to problems. Uh, but it's also, you know, too often it's a bit of an add-on 
Like it's, mm. it's not the real thing that they're selling. It's, it's something that they're trying to use to sell the thing that they really are trying to sell. Um, you know, you're, you're a million dollar add on to a $30 million ERP transformation or something like that. And, and it's, it's hard. And culturally the things that consulting firms value are not necessarily the things that designers value. Mm. And so it, mm. it was for me, it was great experience. I'm really glad that I did it. Um, but I also got to the point where I was not thriving as a creative person. Right. And that, yeah, that was the point it was time to go. Yeah. That, that, that's an interesting point. That was, that actually leads into what my next question was, question was going to be is, you know, earlier, early in your career, you were so connected to the design process. And then as you got acquired and moved up and up and up, it, I'm certain it just turned into more managerial and overseeing the creative process for others. And what, what was that like for you? Like, how did you? And, and, and fighting to make space yeah. for that design process and fighting to have the right kinds of talent mm. um, and, and fighting, you know, to have studio space. Um, because another thing with that sort of consultant model is so much of it is the, you get on a plane on Monday morning and you work on site at an office for your client and then you fly home on Friday afternoon. And, you know, putting one junior designer in a pod full of consultants and engineers, this, that's that's not the best way to get to a great creative solution. A lamb into so, the lion's den. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the engineers run rings around you and you you go back to your home base and you realize that you've just signed up for a ton of concessions and the product's gonna look like crap. Um, but you're powerless. <laughs> and and ultimately that's that's kind of why I left. Um, mm. so, so I that's interesting because I, I don't think many of the audience would. So what I'm hearing you say is that that consulting model is it's it's basically they're shipping teams. It's not uncommon to ship a team to the client. You're working on site with the client and one of the those team members will be a designer and it'll be an interdisciplinary kind of team. Right. That That's an I mean, interesting it might model. Be, it might be two or three, but like it's not it's not like. It's not a, a creative studio environment. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So just to, just to switch gears a little bit here, Michelle, looking back on all that work, is there a particular product um, or UX project that um, stands out as one of your favorite? And, and, and why was that? I've done some really interesting stuff that I'm proud of, um, that I enjoyed. Um, I did a, a big project for a forklift company around sort of warehouse management and, and vehicle maintenance and management. Um, I worked on a surgical robot um, in the adaptation from knee replacements to total hip replacements, which was, you know, a phenomenal project and truly something I would love to do more of. Um, mm. I've worked on actual products. Are you um, are but, you able? Sorry, just to chime in there. Are you able to talk through, say, for example, the surgical robot project? Like, what does that look like from start to finish? You don't have to talk about anything proprietary, but is it like, was it a three year thing? Was it a six month thing? Was it 
um, how did you integrate? Because obviously, uh, what my experience with med tech is that the designer may may sort of fit a larger model, right? So engineering, and then you've got clinicians, and um, you've got a everyone needs to kind of work well together. Um, just because of the complexity of the product and the liabilities and and all of the the regulatory kind of protocols around developing a product like that. I think people would yeah. be, yeah, sorry. We worked with another design firm, uh, a firm that really specialized in research. Um, they brought us in to work on the user interface and the experience. And then, you know, like all of a sudden, also as a small company, um, we had to get our people certified in OR protocols, um, in bloodborne pathogens. I suddenly had to get everybody vaccinated against uh, hepatitis if they were going to uh. go into these surgical theaters. Like there were, there were all of a sudden some policies and things that we had to put in place, which was really interesting. Uh, but we 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 did we had to go and do a lot of like in person stuff to see how this robot was being used. Um, to understand what the challenges were. Like, what does it mm. look like to have an interface when a surgeon is, you know, up to his or her, you know, elbows working in a patient? Like, you can't click a mouse. What does, um, mm. we had doctors, you know, telling us things like, yeah, I never had to wear glasses until I started working with this robot because I'm here working like this, but then I have to look up to the, see the screen that's six feet away. And right. So there were challenges with that, like making things large enough to see and um, a lot of contrast and mm. uh, prioritization of what information is important during the procedure. Um, it was very interesting. Yeah, and that sounds fascinating. One of my all-time favorite projects, though, was I got to work on the original digital strategy for Kroger, which is uh, one of the largest grocery stores in the United States. And at the time... They were they were becoming a digital organization, and I kind of thought, my God, it's grocery. Like I, I mean, I don't I don't even like to shop at the grocery store. And I got in there and realized so much opportunity. Like I have become a complete grocery nerd, and it was great work. We did things in like 2012 and 2013 and 2014 that really didn't start rolling out until like 2018, 2019. And actually when COVID hit, Kroger was ready. And, and I got to see a mm. lot of that work be very mm. valuable to consumers and to the organization. And so, yeah. Was, was it sort of like a touchless experience or like what, what, what about COVID made it ready, ready for liftoff? They were ready to do, you know, buy online, pick up, curbside. Um, they had the infrastructure, they had the app that would support that kind of behavior. Um, they had enough adoption um, and they had really worked through that model of what it looks like for a store associate to go and, and, and pick the products and mm. package them up. It's a testament and it shows the value of companies seeing w what is coming coming in the future and having having a view um, down the freeway, so to speak. I know there's a better analogy, but being able to then at least plan some resources or plan or roadmap what the future of that company or their service offers, offering looks like without being forced to 
and then a certain certain set of events like a pandemic a global pandemic really puts them in the right place at the right time and that's not by accident right i think that there are certain companies we've spoken about this before simon um in our rodi white paper about there are proactive agents there, there are companies mm-hmm. that are very proactive and forward thinking and they and they don't always rest on their laurels they're always looking for the weakest maybe the weakest piece of the business and finding ways to strengthen that and i think um that's an excellent example of a of a company that would be getting ahead of the curve so to speak it's uh when companies are willing to invest in their future they do in fact future proof themselves and that that was the big kind of takeaway from me is that they were thinking ahead and even though they couldn't do a lot of the work that we put in front of them you know a lot of it was visionary work but the fact that they were thinking ahead they were thinking about what their brand proposition could be and what they had a right to own mm-hmm. um, going forward meant that they'd made the right kind of investments over time to realize a lot of those ideas and and probably built the infrastructure for things that we had no way of of even imagining at the time right like we certainly didn't foresee a pandemic nor did they i think the one of the other benefits to doing that if you if you you're trying to future proof your business is that even if the some of the work that you do is not direct, directly actionable it it creates a culture or a dialogue within the organization so that when a pandemic hits the team feels much more ready responsive to some of these ideas because they're like oh we've trained for this you know this this is why this makes sense and so it's easier to get a whole team or an organization in line because the work has kind of, the foundations have been laid uh, whereas if you're caught cold-footed, then it can it can be a very different story. So, and there's it, it almost seems like there's a, a common thread weaving through that in terms of how Michelle you worked through the Great Recession, and then you were part of this Kroger project that prepared them for uh, you know COVID. Um, what about um, anything else about your experience in the workplace in terms of just recognizing talent, empowering employees, uh, and really just establishing that DNA of your uh, company culture? I know, I know it scaled up over the years, but if you go back to the original days, what were some core components that really uh, just sort of manifested that energy that that created those winning formulas? I think I always have been very good at spotting talent. And I can't exactly tell you what that means. Like, I can't tell you exactly what I look for or what, but I, there's something about the spark that people have. Um, the way that they talk about their work, the way that they approach the world, the, the innate curiosity that they bring that, um, when I see people who have that that kind of curiosity, then I I know that they'll do the work to figure out the solution, um, and it's it's a different approach because they'll they'll take feedback. They'll you know they don't fall in love with their ideas. Um, they they fall in love with with learning and getting to the idea. And you know there's something about that that I've been fortunate to you know. Be able to find people like that and um, 
And I've worked, like I said, with some just incredible people over the years who, you know, I'd hire any one of them again because they're great. And I, I look at where they are in their careers. Like I said, it's one of the things I'm most proud about. If you love it, set it free. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly it. Given everything that we've discussed and your experience uh, in the design profession, what do you think are some of the key opportunities for the design industry over the coming decade? It's a great question. And part of the answer has to be AI and how we embrace it, harness it. You know, there's a lot there that it'll do things very quickly for you. It can accelerate ideas. It can generate amazing things. But I feel a little bit like we have an opportunity here, but we, we sort of have to be the lion tamers too. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we aren't careful, the lion will eat us or at least damage us. And, and I don't mean that I think AI is going to take our jobs, but I do mean that if we aren't careful about what it puts out into the world, that's on us. Mm. Um, and a good example, we've been using it, you know, in, in our practice at Hero Digital, we did some, some tests with it, uh, mid journey, you know, generate an image of a common 20 year old man and, and it generates a white man mm. and, you know, an average 40 year old woman and it generates a white woman sent a prompt in one of my creative directors was working on this, uh, a prompt for, you know, a butterfly with a certain lighting and perspective. And it generated this beautiful image, but it's not a real butterfly. Any entomologist would look at this and say, that's just made up. And, and so I think there's a lot of things like that that you've got to be really careful about. You've got to be smart about how you use it because it, it generates a lot of garbage too. It's beautiful garbage in some cases, but it's garbage. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I, I'm not going to name names here, but I know of a prominent um, design agency here in New York, and they were tasked with creating this entirely new uh, visual identity for a client, and they used MidJourney to develop basically uh, an entire war room or battle room, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they they couldn't take anything that that Midjourney um, or Dolly uh, generated. It was only just to be the the launch pad for the human based idea. So yes, you can cover your war room with all of this imagery, but it's the human ultimately that's going to take that and create that original concept. So I think I think that that might be the fine line. It's like let's use this as a launch pad, but not the end result. And that mm. is where we have that human condition filter that's you know like maybe maybe to your point like what 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 sort of bias is there yeah we can be the filter for that or we can be the ones that make sure that this butterfly is is more like a real butterfly uh if it's going to be <clears throat> something that somebody would see in the museum of natural history um but a uh, final question for you michelle for anybody listening, whether they're a uh, designer, maybe 10 to 20 years in their career, looking to shake things up and they want to go off on their own, start their own business, or perhaps it's a young aspiring designer just out of college, uh, what sort of advice might you have for them to just sort of shake things up and, 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 and approach things differently with maybe a different level of curiosity in the world that, you know, could become that next design business or could become that motivating factor as they put the first step into their new career. 
talk to people, talk to a lot of people, surround yourself with interesting people from different perspectives, different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, go out and see the world. Um, we, we create our own echo chambers if we're not careful and, and it's easy to do, right? So I think you have to be cognizant about finding people who are going to disagree with you and who are willing to have those constructive debates about things, um, who are willing to push you uh, to make you, you know, think more, think harder, think differently, justify the decisions you're making, um, who are going to challenge you to turn over every rock and look under it, because that's where the magic really happens. And I, I think one of the things I learned doing strategy is, as a strategist, I have an opinion, but collectively, we will build a strategy. Strategy is a team sport, and mm. design really is too. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo, or visit planco.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.